0: Welcome to Manchester, where the local time is 12.31. For your safety and the safety of those around you, remain seated with your seatbelt securely fastened until the aircraft has come to a complete and final stop at the gate. At that time, the captain will turn off the- Manchester, New Hampshire, February 6th, debate day. For seven Republican candidates, it marked one last chance to make an impression before the New Hampshire primary. There had already been seven debates to that point, so the program was nothing new. But the thing about debates is you never know when they'll surprise you. From the filing center that night, I watched on television, along with hundreds of other journalists in the room, and 13.2 million viewers across the country, as something truly remarkable happened. This exchange between Marco Rubio and Chris Christie. Go to the
1: facts. Here's the bottom line. This notion that Barack Obama doesn't know what he's doing is just not there true. There it is. He knows exactly what he's doing. There it is. The memorized doing. 25-second he's, speech. There well, That's the, that's there the it reason is, everybody. why this campaign is so important.
0: Looking back now with the benefit of a few months worth of hindsight, that moment on a debate stage in New Hampshire was a significant turning point in the Republican race. If not for that misstep, Rubio was on track to place second in New Hampshire. He would have sailed into South Carolina with the wind at his back, putting him in a strong position to win there. But none of that happened. Here was Rubio on primary night in New Hampshire.
1: But I want you to understand something. I want you to understand something. Our disappointment tonight is not on you. It's on me. It's on me. I did not I did not do well on Saturday night, so listen to this. That will never happen again.
0: Meanwhile, Trump won New Hampshire and he went on to win South Carolina too. And well, you know the rest. This is Trailhead, a podcast by Real Clear Politics. I'm Rebecca Berg. In this series, we'll explore the quirky markers on the path to the nominating conventions through some of the standout moments in this year's primary process. As a political reporter, I've been there for many of these twists and turns, but even with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton now the presumptive nominees, this whole thing can sometimes seem unbelievable. I mean, seriously, how did we even get here? Debates are always a major part of the process, and at times they have changed the course of elections. Remember when Rick Perry was on the rise in 2012 until this happened?
1: But you, no can't, doubt about but you that. can't
0: name the third one.
1: The third agency of government, yeah. I, would, I would do away with the education, uh, the uh, <laughs> commerce. I, 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 commerce, and let's see.
2: Mm, uh, I can't. The third. Sorry. <laughs> Oops.
0: More people tuned into the primary debates this cycle than ever before, but if you think about it, debates are a bizarre way to measure candidates and help pick our next president. What does a politician's ability to stand on stage and recite back his or her talking points tell us about anything, really? Yet debates are held in such high regard that they involve a years-long planning process by the parties and the television networks, and they are still the single biggest stage a candidate will stand on during the primary. On the morning after the New Hampshire primary, I met with Steve Dupree in his office in Concord to learn more about how debates come together and why they're such a big deal. Maybe you can set the stage a little bit by telling me what the RNC values about debates <laughs> and how they try to yeah. frame them.
3: Uh, at this point, that could, that could be entirely up for debate. But
0: Dupree uh, is the Republican National Committee man from New Hampshire and chairman of the RNC's Debates Committee. That is to say, he was responsible for making sure the debates didn't get completely out of control this year, like they did in 2012. There were 20-something Republican primary debates that cycle, so many, that on a few occasions there would be multiple debates in a week.
3: There was no maximum, there were 21, it was basically a network call a debate, a candidate would have to assess who was gonna be there if they didn't show up for that debate, they'd get blamed by whoever else was on stage of being a chicken, and uh, there were debates called, you know. Two weeks or a week before a leading candidate had a fundraiser scheduled, the invitations had gone out. It was a mess.
0: This time, the Republican Party hashed out the debate schedule in advance. If any candidate participated in an unsanctioned debate, they'd be barred from the sanctioned ones. Problem solved. Except this cycle brought a completely new, unforeseen problem. 17 Republican candidates wanted in, and it was left to the television networks to decide how to accommodate them. Ultimately, the candidates polling at the lower end participated in a so-called undercard round preceding the main event. But this was deeply controversial.
3: Uh, You know, in hindsight, in the perfect world, if Steve Dupree were all powerful, instead of just the chairman of the debates committee, I would have taken all the names, put them in a hat, divided it into two groups by random, and you drew your name out of a hat to find out which debate you'd be in, and where you'd be on the stage. I think we should have done that for the first three or four debates.
0: Simply put, debates are major logistical headaches for the parties, the campaigns, and the television networks. They have to make decisions as large as who will moderate to who will get what green rooms at the venue. In the end, someone is always unhappy with something, and Dupree, in his role, was on the receiving end of a lot of that.
3: I can tell you that everyone hates the debate's committee chairman. If your candidate didn't make the cut, it was your fault, even though the networks pick. Uh, we'd get lobbying from candidates saying, don't change the criteria to let people in. Uh, we had you know, complaints about the audience size. We always have complaints about who the moderators are. Um, that's how it goes.
0: At one point during the primary, after a particularly controversial debate hosted by CNBC, The Republican campaigns decided to band together to express their concerns and demand changes directly of the networks, cutting out the RNC as middleman. It didn't really work out.
3: And you know, they had this big meeting with all the candidates and guess what came of it? Nothing. But what came of it from our perspective was we told the candidates, you are absolutely free to call the networks anytime about anything you don't like because most of those decisions are being made by the networks. Makes it easier for you guys. Made it a lot easier for us. That meeting was the greatest thing that happened. We weren't invited. They didn't think we were doing a good job. We said, great, you take it over. Guess what? After about, after that meeting and the next following debate, I think they kind of gave up on that.
0: Even from this vantage point, it is tough to assess how successfully Republicans regulated their debate process. Knowing what we know now with Donald Trump as the nominee and many Republicans rejecting him in that role, it colors the whole thing a bit differently. But when I talked to Dupree back in February, it was clear that the number of debates, at the very least, would indeed be kept in check.
3: So, it's a lot better than it was. There's room for improvement. It's a hell of a lot better than what the Democrats have tried to do.
0: In this election, Democrats had the same problem as Republicans, shrinking the debate schedule to a manageable size. They had tried and failed to regulate the process in 2008. After the DNC announced its schedule that cycle, the networks that were excluded, like Univision, just planned their own debates anyway. There was no enforcement mechanism. Instead of the six debates the Democrats had called for, the number quickly climbed into the 20s. At the time, Mo Alathy was working on Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign as her traveling press secretary. Now he's executive director of Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. I think there was some excitement that
1: there was going to be some order to this process. But then once you get to the point, yes, it becomes incredibly taxing. Right? When the things start to unravel, again, you're going from debate to debate prep, to debate to debate prep. I mean, 20, 27 debates or 28 debates over the course of... The first one was, I think, at the beginning of May or the end of April, I don't remember. And then there was a little bit of a lull. But most of them started that fall and went through, you know, the the first big wave of primaries. Um, it just, it is a huge, huge time suck.
0: And so what is, what is and, and, any and, voter getting out of debate number 26?
1: Well, and that's the point, right? The point is, it is a huge... On your time it's a huge demand on your resources it actually takes you away from from speaking directly to voters particularly since a lot of these debates are designed more they, they don't they don't tend to be as substantive as like a town hall conversation
0: fast forward to 2014 and Althea was communications director at the dnc when the committee began to plan its primary debates for this election cycle he became the main conduit between the DNC and the television networks, who have a huge stake in debates. When we began the
1: process, we actually began by talking almost exclusively with the networks about it. They have all the juice because the dirty secret is the parties don't put any money into this. Once we got in there, we decided, okay, we want to actually bring some order to this process. There was an understanding that there really is not a truly effective enforcement mechanism. So our first order of business was
0: just to develop relationships and trust with the network so the thing didn't get out of control before it even got started. That conversation went on for months, with the networks and the DNC feeling each other out. And only much later did the DNC begin its outreach to the candidates to try to pick a magic number of debates. But that's where things really get dicey. Right. I mean, you're going to have some
1: campaign that will demand we want no fewer than a dozen debates, and we are not going to rest until we get it. You get another campaign that says we're not going to do any more than six, and there's not you can't force us to go. What are you going to do, right? I mean, the we are going to have to pick a number, and then it's up to the campaigns what they do, and it's up to the networks what they do.
0: The DNC ultimately picked six debates as its magic number, many of which were scheduled for weekends. Alethi says this was to accommodate the schedules of the broadcast networks. But in particular, former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley was deeply unhappy with the schedule, and he was really vocal about it. As an underdog candidate, he felt like the DNC was playing right into Hillary Clinton's hands and protecting her. Ultimately, Clinton actually ended up agreeing to more debates with Bernie Sanders as the primary process wore on and on. And this was something that Alethe and the DNC hadn't exactly planned for. And if the candidates want to do more debates, DNC's not going to stop it. If every candidate
1: says yes we're not, DNC can't stop it. RNC can't stop it. So what are they going to do? Punish their entire field? If all the candidates and the network all agree to
0: something, they don't need the, they don't need the party it is difficult I know to fathom how any televised political event could be worth all of this drama but having committed a lot of his own energy to the process over the years ay still thinks it's worth it right to a candidate like a Mark
1: O'Malley or a Jim Webb you know a candidate who's not as well known as a frontrunner it matters because it is how they a lot of times how they get introduced in many ways. If you don't have a lot of money and you don't have a lot of name ID, you don't have as big of an infrastructure, being able to stand on that debate stage with your opponents and make your case um, can make or break you. If you're on the other side of the spectrum, if you are a front runner, debates can, can solidify your lead or they can trip you up. Hillary Clinton's first bad moment of the 2007 campaign Was in a debate in Philadelphia in the fall of 2007, where she got tripped up on a question about driver's driver's licenses for illegal immigrants. And, you know, we did 27 or 28, you know, 27 debates. She probably won 26 of them. But that one bad moment, you know, created a narrative that, you know, gave Barack Obama an, an opening.
0: Jeb Bush was one early frontrunner in the primary who really, really struggled with debates. He was awkward and he never seemed to command the stage. Here's his former advisor, Michael Steele, who was involved in Governor Bush's debate prep. He
2: is, by nature, a policy-focused person, a person who is proud of his record in Florida and proud of the plans that he was offering. He was clearly uncomfortable with the performance aspects of uh, of the debates. In fact, you, heard him speak publicly about the fact, well, it's not really a debate. It's a series of two-minute ads or or set pieces. And that really frustrated, really clearly frustrated him.
0: Um, And he got better at it. If Bush was not naturally predisposed to the format of modern presidential primary debates, he was also out of practice. He hadn't run for office in about 12 years. And debating isn't exactly like riding a bike.
2: There is also no denying the fact that he hadn't uh, been a political candidate in longer than most of the other candidates. Obviously, Donald Trump had never been a candidate before, but um, you know it had been several years since uh, since the governor had been a candidate, and then it showed. There was a there was a rustiness to some of those early performances, uh, but I think that by the end, uh, the Manchester debate, the Charleston debate, I thought he had some really strong moments. Uh, it was just. Honestly, at that point, it was harder and harder to, you know, it slipped in the polls, and it was harder and harder to grab time. He's also, by nature, uh, a polite person, and the idea of interrupting, of forcing himself into the conversation, didn't come naturally to him. And again, that was something he got better at uh, as, the, as the campaign went on. But even into January and February, you were looking at, a, you know, you were looking at a pretty big a group of people on stage all fighting for time and a lot of them much more ruthless about it than Governor Bush
0: was. Part of the problem for Bush was also that he and his team began by approaching the debates as if this were a normal election cycle with normal candidates. They figured there would be a place for sober policy discussions but as we all learned very quickly that was not the case. Well we began the
2: process almost completely 100% wrong. We started with the debate process with developing the candidates' policies and talking with a huge group of experts um, in various fields and putting together a platform that Governor Bush would run on on the theory that the debates would primarily be substantive and discussions between debates between the candidates on various aspects of their policy proposals, tech Cruz's flat tax, Marco's child tax credit. Um, Governor Bush's own tax plan, uh, and that plan was completely upended by the rise of Donald Trump.
0: On the debate stage, Trump was the antithesis of Jeb Bush. Whereas Jeb was stilted and serious, Trump spoke without filter and clearly did not care at all about policy. Trump treated the debate stage like, well, a stage, and he was a master entertainer. But Jem did show a slight flash of humor at a three-hour marathon debate in September at the Reagan Presidential Library in California when Rand Paul alluded to Bush having used marijuana. So
2: 40 years ago, I smoked marijuana, uh, and I admit it. I'm sure that other people might have done it and may not want to say it in front of 25 million people. My mom's not happy that I just did. (laughs) (laughs) It was a fun, funny uh, moment that there's no way you can plan for that in debate prep. It was an awful wall topic that ever it was an off the wall topic that came up in an extremely offbeat way
0: so that was just jeb that was all jeb that was no advisor having whispered in his ear exactly and you know the truth is he is
2: he's in very good shape physically and he's in and he actually has a great grasp of both his record and his policies so and his plans so i thought that the third hour of the two-hour CNN debate was in many ways his best performance. A lot of the other candidates were really looking winded, were looking um, exhausted. You know, it was hot, it was a really crowded set, and he really kind of hit his stride when the other guys were starting to wilt.
0: But those moments were rare for Jeb, and the ones we remember now are more like this one, from the debate in Boulder, Colorado, where Bush tried to take on Marco Rubio.
2: But Marco, when you signed up for this, this was a six-year term. And you should be showing up to work. I mean, literally, the Senate, what is it, like a French work week? You get like three days where you have to
1: show up? You can campaign or just resign and let someone else take the job. Well, let me tell you, I don't remember you ever complaining about John McCain's vote record. The only reason why you're doing it now is because we're running for the same position, and someone has convinced you that attacking me is going to help you. Well, I've been. Here's the bottom. After line,
0: debates I... like that and like Rubio's disastrous New Hampshire performance, the candidates' aides still file into the spin room to try to make the most of it, and it can be grueling. You
2: feel like you've been punched in the gut. It's really easy to. Um... Go and you know go into the spin room when something has gone well. It takes a lot of grit to do it when something has gone poorly. I will give um, Danny Diaz, our campaign manager, enormous credit uh, for after that Boulder debate. It would have been very easy to, spend, to send somebody from the comm staff or Pin you know, Miller or me or any any of a number of other surrogates in there, and he walked in just surrounded by reporters drinking a. Some kind of soda. Grab the can on the way in. Was just standing there in this scrum of reporters, all of whom basically wanted him to say, "You know, we blew it," and just sticking to the message of, "You know, what we were what we were there to talk about." Yeah. It took a lot of grit and a lot of a lot of mental toughness to do that.
0: A quick note about the spin room: it is chaotic and noisy, with reporters hyped up on adrenaline and free diet coke jostling for position around candidates and aides, people everywhere getting pushed and pulled and bonked by television cameras. Bush himself didn't tend to swing by the spin rooms after debates, but Donald Trump usually did. He took an unconventional approach to debates in almost every sense. Here's Dupree again.
3: You know, before the first debate in Cleveland, uh, everybody was doing a walkthrough. The candidates had to go and stand up and, if I'm correct, if I remember, I'm pretty sure I am. Donald Trump didn't show up, he sent a stand-in to, you know, for size and lighting. He was out playing around golf, which, <laughs> you know, this that's probably was the best debate prep for him. Hmm. Uh, everybody does it differently.
0: Back in New Hampshire in February, I reflected with Dupree on the debate process. Donald Trump had skipped a debate before Iowa, and it hadn't seemed to matter much. When he was on stage, he glossed over policy details and dodged the tough questions and sometimes lived in an alternate fact universe. Particularly in this new reality TV campaign world, it struck me that we were learning less and less about the candidates on that stage and what they stood for.
3: They're hard, they're, they're a little bit of theater, you hope they're not too much theater, they're a little bit of entertainment, you hope they're not too much entertainment, you hope they're serious policy discussions where candidates are pressed for answers.
0: Still, there are some campaign traditions that continue to make debates look exceedingly civilized and illuminating. We'll dive into one next week on Trailhead.